Please turn with me in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Please give your attention to God's word. As he, Jesus Christ, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with a saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Well, obviously, this morning we are returning to our study through the Gospel of John. We've taken about a four-month break. We concluded studying the end of chapter 8 in the end of August. And so, as we dig back into this precious Gospel, it's good that we take a few moments just to reorient ourselves with where we are in the book. If you remember from our earlier studies... John is recording the historical activities and teachings of Jesus Christ, but he's doing so in a different way than the other gospel writers did so. John isn't really trying to write a biography of Jesus. None of the gospel writers tried to do that in a sense, but John even less so. John, as he chooses different teachings and actions of Christ to record, he chooses them with more of a distinct theological purpose. He is assuming that you know what the other gospel writers have told us about the life of Christ. And so assuming that, then he wants to focus in on particular teachings of Christ and particular actions of Christ that revealed in a very clear and dynamic way the identity of Christ and the authority of Christ and the work that Christ had come to do. We noticed that actually, if you look at the book as a whole, it's fascinating that two-thirds of the book, Jesus had a three-year public ministry, but two-thirds of the book of John covers only one week of the life of Christ. And the last seven chapters of the Gospel of John cover one 24-hour period. That's how zeroed in, that's how laser-focused 
John is to get his message across about who Jesus is. His purpose, his theological purpose, maybe to be more specific, his apologetic purpose in recording these particular events and teachings of Christ is found in the last chapter where he says, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Passionately, as an evangelist and a theologian, wants you to fully understand really the thing that we cannot understand is the majesty, the glory, the transcendence of Jesus as a son of God. This section that we have just, uh, where we're picking up the story kind of midstream, this section really is kind of a fascinating section. We're still in that portion. We've just moved from the, the very quick summary of the first Uh, most of the first three years of his ministry we're moving into this last week of his ministry and these chapters beginning with chapter six really focuses in on on a, a crucial period of his ministry in terms of it being kind of a tipping point and becoming more focused upon his work on the cross if you go to the end of chapter six Remember when we studied there, chapter 6 was, was, was a real turning point in Jesus' public ministry from a human standpoint. Because at the beginning of chapter 6, he had thousands upon thousands of people flocking to him to hear him teach and to witness his miracles. His ministry from a human standpoint was at the high point of its popularity. And it's at that point that he actually feeds probably well over 10,000, maybe over 15,000 people with only five loaves of bread and, and a couple of fish. A tremendous miracle. And the people were so blown away by it that they were ready to make him king. He was that popular. And what's fascinating, as we saw as we looked at chapter 6, is that at that point, he doesn't do the human thing, the sinful, prideful human thing by trying to maximize his popularity. Instead, what he actually does is begin to drive people away. He begins to focus in on the offense of the gospel. He begins to focus in on his radical claims to who he was as the son of God and to really talk about the cost of discipleship. And as a result of that, it says at the end of chapter 6 in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so really the next couple of chapters are really about this this division that happens. It's really the time in terms of his public ministry of great controversy and division over who Christ is and what he was claiming. And the opposition to him gets stronger and stronger. Matter of fact, in in uh, chapter 7, verse 43, it says there, just a summary statement says there was a division among the people over him. A division that Jesus invited, so to speak by being very bold about who he was and what he was claiming. And that's what's really what's striking to me about this section of the Gospel of John, is how aggressive and confrontational Jesus is. If you remember these last few chapters we've looked at, this isn't the, 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 the weak and wimpy and, and passive Zen master kind of Jesus that our culture tends to talk about. That's not the Jesus of John chapters 7 and 8 and 9. He's very confrontational. He boldly states his identity. 
and authority as God's eternal son and the only judge of all mankind and the only savior. He calls the unbelieving, hostile Jewish leaders, he says they are of this world. He calls them slaves. He calls them liars. And ultimately, it culminates in him calling them children of the devil. You can see why he was divisive. But it's a division that had to come. I often find myself wishing I could see the world as clearly as Jesus saw it. That I could see things in such black and white fashion. That I could, as clearly as Jesus saw it, I could tell the difference between the lost and the found, the elect and the non-elect. That I could see so clearly the difference between lies and truth, between sin and righteousness, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Jesus saw it also clearly, and my vision is so blinded and corrupted and fogged up by sin. My, weak, my faith is weak, so I cannot see as he did. But boy, we see the clarity of his vision and the way that he deals with his opponents as well as the world around him in these passages. But that brings me to the key statement in chapter 8. There is the one statement that helps you understand what this whole section of the Gospel of John is about is where in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There, Jesus is making a fantastic claim about his own identity. And he's tying into this overarching, often repeated metaphor that we find in so many different passages of Scripture The distinction between light and darkness. Biblically speaking, light represents truth and love and holiness and righteousness and eternal life and fellowship with God. Whereas darkness represents lies and hatred and sin and ignorance and separation from God and eternal death. That's kind of the driving imagery that Jesus want, that John wants us to see as he records these events in chapter 7, 8, and 9. It's all about Christ showing himself to be the light of the world in the midst of that kind of darkness. And that's why we come here to beginning in the beginning of chapter 9 to the key miracle. John very carefully chose his miracles. He only records, out of all the miracles that Jesus did, John only records seven of them. And we have one of them here at the beginning of chapter 9. And he carefully chooses it to tie into this theme, this theological message that he's trying to get across is that Jesus is the light of the world that does away with all of that spiritual darkness. You know, it's striking. And John, you know, John emphasizes, we've seen it before, John emphasizes that the miracles that he tells us about were signs that they represented huge, powerful, very important spiritual truths. And so that's what this miracle is about. Jesus is the light of the world. You know, it struck me, I never noticed it before. I've studied scripture for a lot of years. I never noticed before. But there's one type of miracle. You know, the prophets did miracles all through... Moses did miracles, the prophets did miracles all through the Old Testament, the apostles, the disciples do miracles in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, 
There's one kind of miracle that only Jesus performs in Scripture, and that's giving sight to the blind. And that's just interesting to me. And I don't want to make more of that than Scripture makes of it, but I think that that's probably true because it so clearly speaks to the central truth that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the only one. Even Paul had his temporary blindness healed by Christ, the risen Christ who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Christ is the one who gives sight. There's such a powerful spiritual image in that. Illustrating the fact that what we saw in a moment ago, it says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so by healing the man born blind, Jesus here shows his power and authority over one of the most practical, most uh, tangible elements of the darkness, the spiritual darkness that is in this fallen world, and that's suffering. Jesus shows the purpose of our suffering in this passage. This miracle of the blindness of this beggar being taken away raises an important question. Why do we suffer? Why is it here? It's one particular aspect of this man's blindness that raises the question. Did you notice that? As Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, it's in the context of, of the Feast of Tabernacles, they leave the temple, and there's a beggar by the gate where the beggars tended to hang out. And he's asking for alms, he's asking for, for, for help, financial help. And as they walk by, somehow, I don't know if Jesus knew this supernaturally or if he was told this, or maybe this man was well-known. It seems that from the rest of the text he was well-known. He had been blind from the point of birth. And... That fact, that he was blind from the point that he was born, raised a theological question for the disciples. And I'm sure the the, the disciples, I would love to have been a disciple, to be able to fire theological questions at Jesus all day long. And that's what happens here. They see this man born blind. He says, Jesus, how does this fit with what the Bible, the Old Testament teaches us about suffering? He was born blind. And what this reflects is that in the mindset, in the theological mindset of the first century Jewish people, they had a slightly corrupted, they they had the Old Testament to tell them about suffering, but their understanding was deficient. And the problem was they, they did understand that God created the world perfect. That it was beautiful, it was perfect, there was no sin, there was no suffering, and that suffering came into the world when Adam and Eve rebelled against their God, and chose to sin, and their sin resulted in the curse of God coming upon all of creation so that the creation is corrupted by sin and has the, bears the effects of sin, and suffering comes into our lives. We have suffering as a result of sin, first and foremost, the sin of Adam and Eve, which brought it into this universe. They understood that. But then the question comes, well, what is the relationship of suffering in a fallen world to the sins that we commit day in and day out. We sin every day. And what's the relationship between suffering and those particular sins that we commit? And basically they had a simplistic understanding that God brings punishment against sin and uses suffering as a punishment against particular sins. And so if I break my leg then there must be some connection to some specific sin that I've committed that's resulted in God allowing my leg to be broken. 
They also wrestled with the fact that the Old Testament talks about the sins of the fathers being visited upon future generations. And so because of that teaching, they added in the idea, well, maybe if there's no sin in my life that I can trace my suffering to, then maybe it's the sin of my parents that I'm bearing the consequences for. This ought to sound familiar if you know, if you've you've ever studied what Job's friends said to him in the midst of his suffering. Job, it says, was a very righteous man, in the eyes of men anyway, a very godly, devout, righteous man, yet he suffered tremendously, suffered beyond anything that you and I could, could imagine. And Job's friends came to him with this same distorted understanding of suffering and said, Job, you must be hiding some great sin in your life. You need to repent more. You need a stronger faith. Or else you're not going to stop suffering like this. And so you can see that as the disciples walk by and see a man born blind, they say, well, okay, Jesus, here's the dilemma. If he's born blind, then he hadn't lived yet and couldn't have committed sin, so how could his blindness be a punishment for his sins? So that opens up the possibility that, well, if you're going by this first century Jewish logic, then it must have been his parents' sin. And many Jewish rabbis would have said that. But there were some Jewish rabbis who said, no, no, and I think they did maybe understand that we are conceived in sin, as David says. We're sinners from the point that we're conceived. So in the womb, we're sinners. So therefore, we can commit sins in the womb. And they actually pointed, interestingly, to the case of Jacob and Esau wrestling in their mother's womb and said, see, sibling rivalry and fighting was going on already in the womb. So maybe this man was born blind because he sinned some great sin in the womb. And so they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the rabbi. You are the teacher of God. Settle this theological dispute for us. Which is it? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. Neither. You know, what's interesting is that in the first century Jewish mindset, one thing they didn't say that you will hear in our culture and even in some of our churches they didn't, you didn't hear the possibility that God didn't want them to suffer but was powerless to do anything about it. Or that God could have prevented them from suffering, could have prevented this man's blindness, but didn't want to intervene and take away human freedom. He so values human freedom and autonomy that he wouldn't want to interfere with that. You don't hear that because first century Jews were at least solid on that biblical point, that God is sovereign over suffering. If we're suffering, it's because God has willed that we suffer. They understood that. That's a basic assumption, and they were right about that. But the problem was that they were seeing the relationship between sin and suffering in much too simplistic of a way. Jesus says it wasn't his sin that led to this blindness. It wasn't his parents' sin that led directly to his blindness. He's blind so that his life might display the glory of God as I interact with him. His suffering was to give this man an opportunity to display the glory of God in his life. Now there is a lot of profound wisdom and a lot of mystery in what Jesus says there and I can't pretend to explain it all to you. What he's alluding to, though, a couple of things he's alluding to. First of all, 
every one of us as sinners, as we're born into this world, even in the womb, because of Adam's sin and because of our own sins, we deserve immediate and eternal wrath and judgment and punishment for our sins. We deserve hell for our sins. So any suffering that we have in this life, from that basic starting point, is grace because it's far less than what we really deserve. Secondly, because sin is in the world and God has a plan and God is at work and we deserve nothing inherently from God and all that we have from God is grace, there is a complex interweaving of suffering and sin. Generally speaking, we suffer because of sin, but you cannot point to any specific sin and say, I am suffering necessarily because of that sin. Only a few occasions in Scripture do you see that kind of interaction going on. It is possible for a person to suffer directly as a result of a specific sin. David is an example. King David committed adultery of Bathsheba and murdered her husband, and it resulted in the death of his infant son and the division of his kingdom. And the prophet made it clear that there was a direct connection between that sin and that consequence. But that's rare in Scripture. Sometimes in our lives, there may be a direct connection between the suffering we're going through and some sin that we've committed. And if you're an unbeliever and you're still under the wrath of God and you're still deserving eternal hell, then it's just a foretaste of the fullness of your punishment to come unless you repent. But if you're a believer... And this is where I want to go with this. If you're a believer, then that even complicates the the whole picture more because of grace. This is what I mean by that. First of all, sometimes the scripture talks about suffering as discipline. Suffering as discipline. Hebrews 12 goes into great detail how God, those whom God loves, he disciplines. So he will use suffering in order to teach us the same way that a parent uses suffering and deprivation and limitation on their children in order to teach them and discipline them to do what is right. And so God will use suffering to discipline us. What that speaks to is the fact that suffering for the believer is an aspect of mercy and grace which begins at the cross. And since I'm hopefully talking to believers here this morning, if you're not a believer Repent, believe on Jesus, and then you will receive what I'm about to describe, which is that Jesus takes the punishment for your sin at the cross. He bore the wrath of God that your sins deserved and paid the price in full so that every sin that you have committed, that you are committing right now, and that you will commit in the future has been paid for in full at the cross. So what that means is that if you as a believer who have put your faith in Christ and have had your sins forgiven and paid for at the cross, if you suffer, I guarantee you, the one thing you can know for sure is that your suffering is not a punishment for your sin. God is not punishing you as judge for your sin because Christ already took that punishment and God is a just judge and he'll never punish a sin twice. That has profound implications for how you view the suffering in your life. That God is never punishing you for having done something wrong. He's not treating you as a judge. We talk about sometimes parents punishing their children, but I don't like to use that word when I'm talking about the context 
of parents and children because it's not punishment. I like to reserve, even though there's a sense you can use the word that way, I'd like to reserve that in my own vocabulary for what a judge does. And it helps me just to keep the distinction clear that when I suffer, God may be disciplining me. He may be teaching me like a parent. He may be using suffering and deprivation and limitation in order to teach me to do what is right and to be what he's called me to be out of love for me. But if Christ has died for my sins, then he's never angry with me as a judge and pouring out his wrath and justice upon me when I suffer. It's hard for even mature Christians sometimes to remember that. So why do believers suffer? Well, already we've seen the discipline maybe part of it, which brings us, I think, to the first. There are basically two reasons. Two reasons why a believer suffers, and it's important you get a hold of this. Two reasons why believers suffer. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I am standing in a room full of suffering saints. You're either suffering financially, you're suffering with hard relationships in your life, you're suffering in your job, you're suffering in your marriage, you're suffering in your relationship with your children or your parents. You may be suffering physically with an ailment or a handicap or some dread disease, but you're suffering. And if you're a Christian, if Christ has died to pay the price for your sins, then there's only two reasons biblically why you're suffering this morning. The first one is to refine you. To refine you. To conform you to the image of Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We don't rejoice in the experience of suffering. What we rejoice in is our Father's loving, awesome, glorious purpose in our suffering, which is to build endurance and character and hope in us. And those things are far more valuable than any earthly possession. What's fascinating to me is that we as Christians in faith, as we wrestle with this concept, we tend to deny to God what we allow to ourselves and to others which is the right to make us suffer in order to make our life better. I go to the YMCA three or four times a week, and I have to talk myself into it every morning. I'm driving down, you know, the blue course, you know, and I'm headed towards the YMCA. I am trying everything in me not to back out of that and drive back home and go to bed or or sit and read the paper. Because I know that when I get to the YMCA, I'm going to make myself hurt. It hurts now more than it ever did before. It hurts to strain your muscles. It hurts to work out. It hurts to make yourself that tired. And I voluntarily do it because I believe it will make my life better. I grant myself the right to make myself hurt in order to make myself better. I grant that right to dentists to hurt me to make my life better. I grant the right to doctors to cut me up, if necessary, to make my life better. Why would I deny that right to my creator and my redeemer? He has the right, and it's motivated by his love and his wonderful plan to make me like Jesus Christ. So he uses suffering in order to discipline us and to, like a scalpel or a chisel, to, to rid us, to like fire, to burn away and to purge away 
the impurities of my life and my heart. John Piper says that God's purpose for suffering is that we might find more contentment in God and less satisfaction in self in the world. So you're suffering. If you're a believer and Christ has paid the the judicial punishment for your sins, you know that that's one of God's purposes for your suffering. No matter what else you don't know about your suffering, he is refining you and making you what he wants you to be, which is the best you can be. Secondly, the second purpose is to fulfill the mission of Christ, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus alludes to it there in verse 4. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus told us that his mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth was going to involve suffering. And matter of fact, not does it only involve suffering like some collateral damage sort of thing, suffering is a main means that he uses to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. He redeems our suffering and uses it to glorify himself in the weaknesses of his saints. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Paul, he actually uses the word boasting. He boasted in his sufferings all the time. Because it glorified Christ and furthered the mission of Christ. He says he was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not his afflictions at the cross, that's finished. But the afflictions of the church as it brings the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the opportunity of suffering. The disciples looked at the blind beggar and saw a theological dilemma, but Jesus Christ looked at him and saw a broken and lost sinner in need of grace and an opportunity to display the power of God and the power of his gospel. Jesus was very self-aware. He is the light of the world. And as long as his light is in the world, there is day. There is a day to serve, a day of salvation. But the night is coming, and the work will be completed. And there was an urgency to his mission that he says we share in. We must do the works that he was sent to do. We share in his mission of bringing that gospel to the end of the earth. Paul talked about it. Paul talked about his his weaknesses. He listed them. He talked about his sufferings. It's because he understood that his weaknesses glorified God and furthered the gospel. Listen to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says here, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul did not boast in his strengths. He actually boasted in his weaknesses because it glorified and magnified the power of God at work in him, and there in particular in relation to his preaching. Over in 2 Corinthians 12, He speaks of this thorn in the flesh that he had, probably some ailment of his eyes that was a severe handicap for him. And he talks about how he pleaded with God to take it away from him. And listen to what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
when we endure suffering, resting and trusting in Christ by faith, then our proclamation of the gospel is so much more powerful. Which brings us to the cure for suffering. Jesus illustrates that in his miracle itself. He does a really unusual thing. He spits on the ground, uses that spittle to create mud with the dust, and then uses that mud, puts it on the eyes of this blind beggar, and then tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which is by the the city gate, by the wall, and to wash. And when he did so, the man was able to see for the first time in his life. Someone who had never seen light before, had never seen the sky, had never seen trees, had never seen people. All of a sudden, he could see. And he he was so overjoyed and so changed by the experience of seeing that people didn't even recognize that. That must be somebody who looks like him. It It raises the question, why did Jesus... I mean, couldn't Jesus, so many of his miracles, all he did was just speak it and it was done. Why did he, kind of a humiliating thing he did to the man. I mean, if you spit in the ground and made mud and put it on my eyes, I'd probably punch you. But, you know, I don't know what he was thinking. It's kind of a humiliating thing he did to him and then told him to go and wash. Was it the mud that healed him? Was it the water? Absolutely not. Some commentators think that Jesus was symbolizing, it's a sign, the miracle's a sign, was symbolizing that he is the creator. He made man out of dust and he heals by dust, and that's possible. But one thing that I, and that's, you know, we can speculate about why particularly he did what he did. One thing that's clear to me, though, is that he required the man to show faith. He required the man to respond in faith, to not resist the mud being put on his eyes, and to go and wash, and the man did so without question. Why? Because he trusted in this healer. He trusted him, and he obeyed him. He gave evidence of his faith by doing what he told him to do. And because his faith was genuine, his faith in the power of Christ, it was the power of Christ that healed him. So that tells you two things. First of all, to be healed. We're born blind beggars unable to see the light of truth and righteousness in God. If we want to be healed, we need to believe in the word of Christ. We need to trust him. And secondly, we need to be washed clean. The pool called Siloam, the word, it's interesting, Paul, John, he actually tells us what the word Siloam means. And there's a reason for that. Because the word Siloam means sent. And that points back to verse 4, where Jesus had just said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. I am the light of the world. I am the one sent by the one true God of the universe. I am sent into the world to provide the cure for spiritual blindness. John makes sure that we know that that pool was the word sent because he wants to make sure we get the point that Christ is the one who washes us clean. It's his blood shed on the cross that makes us clean before God. If we will believe, we will be able to see. Or we see because he has given us that gift to believe. The result is that we are born again, we see God by faith, and then we obey and follow the light of the world. You know, it's interesting how this man's faith grew. 
at the end of the passage where we left off, he says, he calls Jesus the man called Jesus. And certainly he was fully a man. But he goes on in verse 17 to say he is a prophet. We'll see this next week. He under, comes to understand he's a prophet. Verse 33, he comes to understand that he is sent from God. And then verse 38, he says to Jesus, I believe that you are the son of man. You see, the faith of a mustard seed became stronger and stronger. And that's really what spiritual sight, having the light of Christ come into your life does. As your sight gets stronger and clearer as he works in you, particularly as he works in you through suffering. I don't know how you're suffering this morning. If you don't know Christ, then I pray that your suffering will drive you to the cross. And at the cross, you will be filled with the light of the world. You'll be able to see spiritual reality once and for all. And if you go to the cross, you'll see that Christ will take the punishment out of your suffering. God will no longer be angry at you ever again for all eternity. He will become your father. You will be his child. And he will transform the suffering of your life into a refining fire that strengthens you, that purges the sin from your life, and conforms you to the image of Christ. Let me close with John chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father, our sight by faith is so weak. And yet, it's a gift from you, and it's growing by your grace. Father, thank you for helping us by your word to better understand, at least in a small way, your purposes in the world, especially through suffering. Lord, may we embrace and rejoice in our suffering, not as an experience, but as a tool in your hands to make us like Christ and to enable us to show his glory to the world. Thank you, Lord, for your work of grace in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.